Sadducees and Pharisees, and I read Herodians, and I read about Zealots. What's the deal with those groups? What are they about? And, um, and I said, well, I taught about that four years ago. You know, where were you? Oh, you lived in a different state. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna, I want to touch on that. There's other stuff that we're going to touch on. But I'm talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ said he was the kingdom of God. It's here. It's now. And so we want to talk about what he was talking about. And I, and I said on there, too, the dust of your rabbi. It's just because I like, there's an old Jewish saying from, from ancient days, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. And what that means is this idea that you are so close to your rabbi that the dust, his flip-flops, kick up, gets on you because you're right there. It's that idea of being a, an attentive student, of, of being a learner, of being willing to change and grow as you're taught by your rabbi. And our rabbi is Jesus Christ. So may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. So in Jesus' day, when he said the kingdom is here, the kingdom of God is here, there were different ideas about the kingdom of God and how to make the kingdom of God happen in our world. And, it, and these ideas that they had back then, are, are we're wrestling with ideas like that too now. We're wrestling with ideas as Christians, you know, how do we try to make what we believe is right happen in this world? So I want you to see the first, and it's on your sheet there, the first, bringing the kingdom of God, I want, it's the world's greatest mission. It's the greatest thing you can be involved in. And Jesus, at uh, one point, we're going to look at Luke, Luke 4 here. It's on your sheet in just a second. Jesus goes home to Nazareth. Now, we know this. We know that synagogues in that day had a reading schedule of the Word of God. They had a reading schedule, and then... Anybody, any male, sorry ladies, that's just the way they were, any male, 13 and over, would be assigned a day to read. And it would be, on, it'd be this ongoing basis, you know, and, and uh, Nazareth was, was a fair-sized little village, was, they think maybe 15,000, maybe a few more, and, and so the, the reading schedule, you'd get your name on there. Well, it looks like this is Jesus' day to read. So he goes to Nazareth. And it says they, they, they assign him, they give him what his reading is, and it's from Isaiah 61. And it's about what the kingdom of God will look like when the kingdom of God comes, all right? So if you, you can look at your sheet, it's on the overhead there. This, this is what Jesus read, and I should say this. What would happen is they would read, and then they'd give a little, a, a sermon. They'd give a sermon, uh, and sometimes the sermons could be could be long, someday, some, sometimes they could be short like mine, and um, they would give this sermon that would talk about what, they, what that passage means to them, what they think it means, that type of thing, all right? So that's the background, a little historical background. Here's, here's what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Okay, they would sit to teach. They'd, they'd sit in the, uh, oftentimes they called it the mercy seat. They would sit there to teach. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All right? So let's look at this incredible passage that Jesus read it's a messianic passage. It's a passage about the coming king. It's, it's from Isaiah. It's, it's hundreds of years, written hundreds of years before the time of Christ. 
And, and there's this passage. And I, I want to say this historically. They, they would hear, especially in that time, messianic ideas were big in the time of Jesus. Um, uh, they were prepared for it. And, and they would hear lots of talks. We have some of them. We still have some, some of the talks that, that, that rabbis or people gave in those days. And, uh, and I looked one up. All right, and I don't want to read you the whole thing because this one—it's it, a—it's a longer one. But his this reading was from a part of of Isaiah, and it says, I, de "I delight greatly in the Lord; my soul rejoices in my God, for He hath clothed me with garments of salvation, and arrayed me in a robe of His righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head, like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself." With her jewels. So that's the passage that was read. And this is the sermon that just, we don't know who the guy is. It's just a sermon. And he, and he started talking, and it's a long exposition of the garments of God, different places in Scripture in the Old Testament where God clothes himself. And I'm not going to read you all of that. But I want to get down to, he gets to about the seventh garment that he's talking about. And he says, but the garment, and, and this is from either a rabbi or just an adult in a synagogue in a close to Jesus' day, talking about Isaiah 61. But the garment which he has, he, he will put on the Messiah. This will shine from one end of the earth to the other. For it's said in Isaiah 61, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, so he will clothe me with the gar gar garments of salvation. And this man, he's talking to his congregation. He says, blessed is the hour when the Messiah will come. Blessed, highly favored, is the womb out of which he shall come. Blessed is his contemporaries who are eyewitnesses, those who are so fortunate to see him. He says, um, blessed is those who hear the opening of his lips, which bring peace to all people. Blessed is the one who hears his speech because it is the moving of the spirits. His thoughts of his heart are confidence and cheerfulness. The speech of his tongue is pardon and forgiveness. His prayer is the sweet incense of offerings. His petitions are holiness and purity. Oh, how blessed, how highly favored is Israel for whom such has been prepared. For it is said in Psalm 31, 19, that how great is thy goodness which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee. So this man is talking to a synagogue congregation around the time of Jesus, and he's pounding the, the time of the Messiah is blessing, 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 highly favored. We can't wait you got to understand for a Jewish audience, they would be like, yes, yes, yes. They would be so excited, all right? Tremendous excitement, tremendous anticipation. I mean, things like blessed is the hour and what is coming. Blessed is the womb and from which he comes. You know, all of these things, people who got to eyewitness. And they would hear this. They would hear that he's, this is how it's going to be. And so they would look for these signs of the Messiah. And this passage that we read in, in, in Luke chapter 4 is from Isaiah, and it is, these are the signs of the Messiah. These are, he uses metaphors to say, look, this is how you'll recognize the Messiah. What is the first thing he says? He says, um, he says, preaching good news to the poor. Now, the Greek is, is such a wonderful language. It, it, it just has some great ways of expressing things. And the word here that's used for poor is the word patokos, all right? And, and it's a verb. The verb form, originally, is the word for cringe, to cringe, to shrink back, to cower, to be ashamed. 
It was common in those days, oftentimes, especially for someone who had become poor, and they would have re be reduced to begging. When they would beg, they would cover their face because they didn't want people to look at their face, and they would hold out a hand. Why? Because they were ashamed. They were cringing. They were fearful. They hated that this is how their life has come to be. So this word, patokos, it means a total lack of resources. It means someone who has absolutely nothing. Now, there's another word for poor in the Greek. And the other word for poor is penikos. You have patokos and penikos. Penikos means very poor, but you have a little something. You have something. So patokos, you've got to understand, is nothing. You have no resources. You have nothing to fall back on. You have no hope in yourself. In Luke 21, we have the story of the woman who gave, I'm, I, I'm, you know, originally learned it in the King James, gave her two mites. I don't know about you, but I used to always go, I don't get that. What is mites? You know, she gave two pennies. She gave very little, right? And it describes her as being Pentecost, very poor. She gave her two pennies, and then she's described as Ptokos. Nothing. She gave all she had. She destituted herself for God. And so that's how those two words, and so this word is the word for nothing. You know? And so he says, Jesus Christ has come for the people who have, they have no options, they have no resources. And it's not just, it can be economically, but it's not, these are metaphors for a spiritual condition. This is why the kingdom has come to rescue those people who have absolutely nothing. You know, without Christ, we got nothing. We can say we're rich, and we can, we can be very comfortable. We can, say, we can say we have this, and we can say we have this, and we can say we have this, but the Bible says we have nothing apart from Jesus Christ. We see that in the book of Revelation. John is talking to Laodicea. I, I, just, I guess I should warn you, we're going to just be jumping today, okay? So just hang with me. In the book of Revelation, John says to Laodicea, you say you're rich because it was a very rich city. You say you've grown wealthy and you need nothing. You don't realize that you're pitiful, you're wretched, you're poor, you're blind. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you could become rich, white garments so that you could be clothed and your shamefulness will not be exposed and salve to anoint your, anoint your eyes so that you could see. So here's this city. They were very rich. One of the reasons they were very rich is they were known for this salve that they made that helped people with eye problems and they made a fortune. The city grew incredibly wealthy off of that. The other thing that city did is they had a certain dye that they could only get the pigment in their area so that when they dyed clothes, this very special deep color of purple, no one could match it, and it became highly sought. Imagine a society that puts so much wealth, so much effort into clothing. Amazing. So they, they, they had this deep purple, and, and they became incredibly rich off of that. And what does Jesus do? He says, you need my gold. You need my righteous robes, right? You need my salve because you're poor and you're blind. So he's expressing this. This is, this is a spiritual metaphor here. And, and this is what's going on here. He says, he has preached good news to the people who have no resources, spiritually speaking especially. Now, there's plenty of places where the Bible talks about reaching the poor economically. That, I'm not, that's not in doubt. But here he's saying no spiritual resources. The second one he says is, he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. 
all right? The captives, the prisoners. Okay, this is the good news that there's going to be, that word freedom is this word, um, ephesus, which, which means release, which means forgiveness. Forgiveness. The cancellation of a debt and the penalties that are incurred by that debt are forgiven. When someone wrongs you, when someone does something really terrible to you, they have incurred a debt to you. And if you decide to forgive it, you're saying, I'm going to cancel that debt. I'm going to cancel it. But the thing is, the debt still has to be paid for. It can't just be canceled, you know? It's like if you, uh, if, if, if you, own, if you owe money on a car and a friend says, hey, I'll take care of it. The debt's canceled for you. Thanks. Awesome. If any of you are feeling that, well, talk to me. I'll find someone for you. Um, um, you, 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 thanks, but, but, but what still has to happen? That person has to go to the bank and pay the debt. It still has to be paid. That's why when somebody does something, this is a side note, sorry, this is a rabbit trail, a rabbit trail in a sermon that is mostly a rabbit trail. Um, that's why when someone harms you and it hurts you deeply and you say, I want to forgive you, I'm going to forgive them, God, help me to forgive them. And then it comes back. You know how that feels? You, you, you forgive them and you say, I'm done with that. And then you're walking away and you're thinking, they're such a jerk. What? It came back, right? Why? Because it still hasn't been paid for. It takes time to pay for a debt that has cut you deeply, that has hurt you deeply. It doesn't, you know, our culture says forgive and forget. That's a load of bull, right? I mean, that, you, you, somebody harms you and you just say, it's gone. It is not gone. It keeps coming back to you. Why? Because it's still being paid. It still has to be. And Jesus says, I came to release the captives, to bring freedom to the prisoners. For those that have wronged, and we have wronged God a lot. And that's why he came to cancel the... To tell us die. What Jesus said, it is finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. That's what it means. Paid in full. Jesus, when he said it is finished, he's saying the debt has been paid. The debt has been paid. Okay, third one. It says recovery of sight for the blind. All right? And that, that I don't even think I need it. That's, I once was blind. Now I see. Now I see. When I came to Christ, you know, grew up in a home, we didn't, it wasn't even, a, God wasn't even a part of our home. Uh, I grew up in a home and, and, and I was living my life the way I thought I should live it. And God pursued me for four or five years till I finally gave up and, and accepted him. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, there's a whole world I didn't even know. There's so much I didn't know about. There's so much I can do. There's so much I can be involved in. There's so many ways I can help people. Instead of living for me, I can live for others. And I find there's greater joy in that. I was blind to that, but now I see it. Now I see it. God, Jesus offers that to us. And then the, the, then the fourth one is to release the oppressed. Now, now, this isn't the prisoners. This has got a little bit of a different... It's the idea of people who are broken and shattered the oppressed, the people who are weighed down. They're overwhelmed by the pain of life. They're overwhelmed in relationships that are abusive. They're overwhelmed by illness. They're overwhelmed by whatever all the troubles of life that can bring to bear. Overwhelmed by, by a, a, a relationship falling to pieces. Overwhelmed by, by, 
by maybe something your children have done, something your father, has, mother has done, parents have done, somebody that you love has done. You're overwhelmed. It just weighs you down. And that's the oppressed. And those are the people, says, Jesus says, come unto me, you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And Jesus, he, he, he hits those four things, the four signs of the, of the Messiah from Isaiah 61, four key things. And Jesus says, it's me. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He, what is he saying? Remember that sermon that guy gave uh, that I, I talked about? And he said, oh, blessed be, will be the ones who are able to see the Messiah alive during his day. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's me. You're blessed. Right? And, they, and, they, and then they were all like, oh, we are so blessed. Yay. No, they didn't. Remember what they said? Who does he think he is? Can you imagine that? I, I, that's how, I mean, that's how I would have reacted. I would have said, hold on, Jesus. Man, we grew up together. You, you didn't, no. Who do you think you are? Even his family was struggling with it. Because what do they say? They say, oh, you're Joseph's. Come on, Mary's son. What in the world? You were special, but Messiah? Hey, you're getting a little big for your britches, pal. Right? And they reacted violently. They reacted violently. They said, who is this man? And you see, that's the key. They said, who is? He's just a man. He's just like me. Who is this man? You remember Fred Rogers? Mr. Rogers? He had one message. It wasn't the kingdom is coming. His message was, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And I'm so glad you're you. And I like you just the way you are. Won't you be my neighbor? That was his message. And a lot of people think Jesus is like Fred Rogers, right? A lot of people think Jesus is a nice guy and he said some really nice things. We ought to be good neighbors and we ought to be nice to each other. Many people think that way of Jesus. In fact, if you watch some of the movies that have been made about Jesus, he comes off as this kind of saccharine, sweet guy. Nobody understood him. He's kind of like a dreamer. And he said some nice things, but let's face it, he's not in touch with the high-pressure world that we live in. He's a good guy, and we ought to be more like him, but we can't, of course, not in the real world. And the problem is this. The problem with thinking of Jesus like Fred Rogers is this. No one got mad and wanted to kill Fred Rogers, right? Nobody said, I wish they'd take Fred Rogers out the back and kill Nobody said that. But Jesus, yeah, they did. Because Jesus is a dangerous guy. And they killed him. And they killed him. And he's dangerous to follow. I want to tell you, when you begin to follow Jesus, it can get dangerous. Sometimes I, I, deal, I deal with people, and sometimes I'll deal with people to say, I really believe God wants me to do this. I really believe God wants me to do this with my life. And, and my family is against it. Why? Because it's dangerous to follow Jesus. People won't understand. People won't, people won't and, and it's not that I encourage every person to go against what their family says. No, it's more than that. It's you know, much more complicated than that. But I also know there are times when you decide to follow Jesus Christ, people will not understand. People won't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it, and they think you're foolish. Giving money to the church. Have you seen the abuses of the church? Right? People say stuff like that. Have you read about all that stuff? And you give money? 
your pastor probably drives this big old car, you know, and he has a big gold stuff. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And I, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Following Jesus can be, can be dangerous. And, and we see this over and over in different places. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. One, one, of, one of his forerunner, this guy who said, this is it, this is it. He got put in prison, and Jesus went to the area where he got put in prison and started saying, John was right. And John got, lost his life over that. The kingdom of God, here it is. And what is it? It's up there, comes down here. It's the Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Just like heaven, on earth. That's what we want, God. But just by talking about the kingdom, Jesus can get himself, he's getting himself in trouble. So I want to just say real quick, what, what did people think of when they said the kingdom of God? What were people thinking of in that day? All right? So we're going to talk about three false ideas about the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about what the zealots said. You've heard that. That name is in the New Testament, in the, in the four Gospels. What the Essenes or the Pharisees, Pharisees is in there. Essenes is not. Essenes is kind of a subgroup. But we've heard a lot about them recently because of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the last 70, 80 years. And, and that they were, they were obsessive about copying things down. So we are thrilled that they did that. Uh, the third group is the Sadducees, or oftentimes they're called the Herodians. All right? So let's talk about those three groups. They're all in your Bible. First off, the Zealots. All right? The Zealots were, the kingdom is only going to come if it's through overthrow of a government. That's what they believed. So they believed that violence was the answer. If enough people get mad to overthrow the Romans, we'll, we'll, get, up, we'll, start, we'll get an army, and we'll kill these Romans and chase them out. And so they wanted political changes and violence, if necessary, for those political changes. So theirs was the way of attack. They were extreme nationalists. They were known for being assassins. They were known as terrorists. What we call terrorists would be how the Romans labeled the zealots. They often would set traps. They often would catch you know, a few people alone at night, especially in the Galilee area, the Romans knew you travel in groups. Roman soldiers knew we travel in groups because they'll, they'll, they can kill us. They'll kill us. They'll, they'll set a trap, especially at night. All right? So, did Jesus know any zealots? All right? Well, here's, let me just read you it from Luke 6. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. One was Simon, who was called the zealot. How do you think the Roman authorities felt that one of Jesus' closest people was known as a zealot? He's in trouble right off. He's in trouble. But this is what's so great. He didn't cater to the zealots. Look at this. Jesus said, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. He said to those following, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith as this Roman soldier. Can you imagine the little bit of cognitive dissonance that's going on in Simon the Zealot's mind? I think he's the Messiah. The way we win is we kill the Romans. 
he just healed a Roman centurion's child. That's going in the wrong direction. Don't heal their people. We're going to kill their people. He must have been struggling with that. And Jesus says, man, there's nobody with faith like that. So Jesus didn't cater to the zealots. Um, he, he went in the opposite direction. But he had a zealot on his team, as it were. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Now that sounds like something Mr. Rogers would say. And, 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 but the zealots weren't thrilled with that. He didn't cater to them. They didn't like that phrase. He said in Matthew 5, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Have you ever wondered what that's all about? Here's what it's about. When the Romans occupied a land, they made, there's laws. In, and, and one of the laws was if a Roman cohort or Roman soldiers are on the move, they're marching, and you're, you live in this little town they're marching through, they can point to you and say, come here, carry my pack one mile. They're only allowed to let you carry it for one mile. And they could do that with anyone. But by law, if they said, if you're, if you're working in your field and a Roman calls you over, you got to put it down, you put on his pack and you walk next to him for one mile, then you walk back. And Jesus said, if they ask you for one, give them two. And Simon probably was thrilled with that idea, right? And so he's saying, the zealots aren't right. That's not the answer. Attacking is not the answer. The kingdom's not going to come by force. So the second one is the Essenes or the Pharisees. We really know the Pharisees. The Essenes were a part of an offshoot of the Pharisees. And basically, what they, what they, their whole idea was that, that we withdraw. We withdraw from society. The Romans are corrupt. The temple's corrupt. There's, uh, all the, we, we need to be pure. So they had all these rules and regulations about purity, and they followed them very faithful. Do not touch, uh, you know, do not eat, all this stuff with your, how, how, you're dre how you dressed, how you wore your hair, uh, the, the type of words you were allowed to speak. The, the Romans were, the, the Pharisees were all a part of that. They believed in kind of pulling in our own little clique, and we don't associate with those people. You don't have those people over for dinner. You don't, you don't even talk to those people because they're not our people. They're the others. They're the enemy. So we don't care about them. They even had a saying. This is, this is interesting. There was a, a, a rabbi, and he was a pretty famous rabbi, a little bit before Jesus. And he said, the angels rejoice in heaven when a sinner goes to hell. Now, that sounds a little familiar, familiar, right? Remember what Jesus said about the 99 sheep and the lost coin? He said, the angels rejoice in heaven when a sinner repents. That's what they rejoice over. You guys got, the, but see, the Pharisees, no. We, we, we hate those people. They're not like us. They're not our kind. They're not, they don't follow the rules like we do. So we hate them, and, and we stay separate from them. Now, what did Jesus do that ticked them off? When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Levi was a tax collector, which, again, you know, he's a traitor. He's a, he's a Jew who's a traitor. He's gone to the Romans, all right? Eating with him and his disciples, uh, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many of those kind of people who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, who's offended here? The Pharisees are offended because he's, he's going outside the boundaries. Last week, you remember, we talked about boundary markers that groups put up, and Jesus is breaking those boundary markers down. He touches a leper. 
The Pharisees are offended when he does that. He allows, he allows a prostitute to wash his feet with his tears. Who's offended? The Pharisees are offended when he does that. What is he doing? He's saying the Pharisees are wrong. The kingdom of God is not about withdrawing into some safe little religious subculture. Up there does not come down here that way. It doesn't work that way. So the last one, the Sadducees and the Herodians. All right, Who, What are they like? Well, first of all, the Sadducees, they had uh, different religious beliefs than a lot of the Jews. They were Jews, but they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They were just like, what we're going to get is right here, right now, this earth. This is all we're going to get. Now, we need to be good people, but this is all we're going to get. It's kind of like, if you can't beat them, join them. And so what did they do? They joined the Romans. And they say Herodians, that means those are, those are Jews who now are following Herod in the sense of they've adapted that culture. And when we talk about the Sadducees, those were Jewish uh, priestly people who had kind of given up on, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in an afterlife. So Herod picked them to run the temple because they wanted to do what he wanted to do. Get what you can now. They were collaborators. Many of the tax collectors were Herodians. Because they're like, man, why fight it? Just get what you can now. And they ended up working for Rome as tax collectors. They lived as if God was not an important part of their lives. I think about times in my life where I live as if God is not important, as it doesn't matter if there's a God. And when I do that, I'm a Sadducee. When we do that, we're Sadducees. We live as if my time is all about me and what God calls me to do is not as important. As if my money is all about me and what God calls me to do is not, as not as important. As if my gifts or, or the things I'm able to do is all about me and what God wants is not, not as important. What am I doing? I'm living as if God is not important. Just like what they were doing. They ran, the, they ran the temple, temple, and it was a big business. That's why they, they clashed with Jesus so much, because they were making a fortune off the temple. They were cheating the people. And they were the collaborators. They were just saying, I'm just going to get what I can now, because this is all there is. And so we have a story of when the Herodians and the Pharisees tried to gather, join together to try to trap Jesus, because he's so dangerous. You know, you know nobody tried to trap Mr. Rogers. You think about it? Nobody said, okay, Fred Rogers, what do you really mean by neighbor? Nobody did that. But look at this. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, which sounds a little hypocritical, right, from them, you know? You ever get that from somebody? You ever get somebody that goes, man, you're such a great guy and you do such great things, but... And you go, oh, okay, now we're getting to what you want to talk to me about. That was all window dressing, right? That's what this is. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, okay, here, there's the but. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? All right, so what's going on there? What's going on there? A little tax question, nothing big, right? No, it's huge, it's huge. I was reading a couple of historians. They say that may be the foremost question in the minds of people in Jesus' day. Why? Because about 15 years earlier, 
when Jesus was about a 15-year-old, a man in Galilee, Judas of Galilee, not the Judas that knew Jesus, he started a tax revolt. The taxes were getting so oppressive. And, and they estimate the taxes may have been 80, 90% at that time on people. People just could barely live. He started a tax revolt. He said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. And what did he do? They broke into an armory. They got all these weapons. And they said, we're going to kick them out of Galilee. And we're going to not pay taxes to Caesar. So they killed a bunch of Romans. They started pushing them out of Galilee. Well, what, you know, what does Roman, Rome do? Well, they just send an army. And they swept through there. But what they did, and they do this, they would do this sometimes, they tried to capture as many of them alive as they could. And then every town in Galilee had two to three people from their town who was crucified in, their, in the middle of the town. The Romans hung them on a cross and left them there for a week as a sign. Don't mess with Rome's taxes. Don't you dare mess with the tax system of Rome. So, Judas of Galilee was viewed as a hero. He tried to help us. He was one of our guys. He's venerated as someone who would not pay taxes. And so when they say to him, tell us, then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You think about this. If he says it's right to pay taxes, they'll, oh, he's a, he's a traitor. He's a traitor. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, they're going to go, oh, Sadducees are going to go, let's go tell the Romans. We got another tax revolt on our hand, but we can nip it in the bud right now. He doesn't have that many followers. You see, he, it doesn't matter what he says. It's one of those questions. It's like if someone says to you, have you stopped beating your wife yet? What do you say? Yes. Or wait, no, wait. You can't answer it. You can't answer it in a good way. It's a question that has you trapped on either side. All right, so what does Jesus do? Jesus knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. All right? What does Jesus do? He brilliantly answers this question. He tells them, look, look, there's a civil government. You pay taxes. But here's the key. He says, Caesar is not God. Now, why would he say that? Well, that coin has on it, it a, picture, a Roman denarius will have on it a likeness of Caesar, and it'll say, uh, Divi Filius. And, and there's, you, you can see them even today. Divi Filius, the son of God. Because Caesar Augustus was worshipped Caesar, the first, the first Caesar was worshipped as a god. Caesar Augustus took that mantle as the son of God, so he became a god. And after that, all Caesars claimed to be God. So when Jesus says, hey, yes, you pay taxes to Caesar, but he says you give to God what is God's. He's, what is he saying? He's saying, but Caesar's not God. Let's make sure we differentiate here. It's very important. Caesar is not God. He is not the person who is in charge of your life. He is not the one you worship. And you know what? That, that saying of Jesus, there were a lot of Christians in the next 200 years that were martyred because once a year, every person in the Roman Empire was supposed to worship Caesar. And many Christians found ways of not 
you know, not being available that day. It was on a set day. But some Christians got rounded up and got brought before an altar and there was incense and you'd sprinkle, there's a fire, you'd sprinkle a little incense on and you'd say, Caesar's God. And Christian, and we have the records of this that would say, no, there's only one God and his son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I will not. And there you go, if you do not, you will die. So be it. The, the, one of the bishop of... Uh, um, in Asia Minor um, about A.D. 140 or 150, I think it was. And he said, I cannot. And they said, this God would let you sacrifice your life. And he said, after all he's done for me, my life is a, is a very small sacrifice. After 85 years, he was an older man, after 85 years, his goodness to me, this is nothing. And so Jesus tells him, the people, anyone who allows money and power to dominate their life, they're bowing down to these coins. They're bowing down to this system. They're missing the kingdom of God. Who's he talking about there? Sadducees. And us, but the Sadducees. So, we got three groups. The zealots, they get mad, they hate, they attack. We got one group, the Pharisees, they try to withdraw and stay pure, tell the rest of the world, you can go to hell, I don't care. That's a very... Um, it's an easy thing to think. You know, as we see our world and we see things that are happening in other parts of the world, it's easy to say, well, it doesn't affect me. I don't really care because it doesn't affect me. And, and I do that. I do that. I'll see something on TV. I can't do anything about it. It doesn't affect me. But I don't want to do that because that's what the Pharisees did. Pharisees said, we don't care about those people. Go to hell. God's pleased when one of you dies. Angels rejoice when one of you dies. And God is telling us, no. No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And then the other one is Sadducees. It's all about me and what I can get. I can be religious if it suits my needs. I can be religious if it makes me feel better. It's not important. So we see those, those three groups, but the final thing is the key to bringing in the kingdom. The key to bringing the kingdom is love. It's love. And Jesus taught that. So the Romans are wrong. Caesar's not Lord. There's another kingdom. And it's breaking through at that time. Attacking in anger and violence is not the way. Withdrawal is not the way. Compromise is not the way. And I mean, you know, so much of the time, that's what our culture wants. The culture gets us to look at others as enemies. They're, they're not our enemies. ISIS is not our enemy. On the human level, we, we, we are allowed to defend ourselves, but we have to understand they are created in the image of God. All these people all over the world are created in the image of God just like me. And I have to respect that. And I have to. I have to deal with people as much as I can in love. And Jesus says, I'm the way. He says, up there is coming down here through my life, through me, through my teaching, through my death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, through my defeat of death, and my resurrection, a new community is starting. It's a kingdom community. And it is so strange, the people he chooses. It's not like we would choose. I was talking the other day to somebody about, you know, it was three, three older guys, right? So we're talking about the sound. I was sitting there talking and thinking, oh, man, here's a couple of old guys yakking. 
We were talking about when we were kids, you know, we were kids, you go out and do this, do that. And, 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 I, and I remember it as a kid, you know, going out and meeting a bunch of my friends at a field and we're going to play ball, you know, we just would do that all the time. And choosing teams, oh, I hate that part of it though. I hate that part of it. You're on my team. Two captains, right? You're on my team. Okay, you're on my team. You're on my team. And me left. And the guy who's next to choose goes, I don't want him. I don't want Mosley. And the other guy goes, you have to take him. It's your turn to choose. I don't have any other choices. Got to have Mosley. And oh, crap, you know. And then, of course, if you're playing ball and you're not very good, where do they stick you? Right field where nobody hits the ball. And then they hit the ball to me and I dropped it and I reaffirmed everybody's opinion of me. And what's going on here? Jesus says, Jesus says, I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. I choose you. It's very interesting in those days when a, when a rabbi had disciples, the disciples had to apply, right? And they had to demonstrate their knowledge and how good they were at all these things. And then the rabbi would say, yeah, okay, thanks for applying. You're, you're in. Or thanks for applying, but no thanks. You know, it, was this, it really was an application type of a procedure that happened. You had to show how good you were with Scripture and all this, how you could get along with people. Well, what did Jesus do? No one applied. What did he do? He went to the people who weren't anybody else's disciples because they weren't good enough. Peter, James, John. And he said, I choose you. I choose you. And if you notice, he chooses them more than once because they go back. And so in Scripture, we see that he goes back to Galilee one time, says, hey, I choose you. Follow me. Follow me. Kind of like, I mean it this time. Don't go back to those fishes. Follow me. I choose you. He chooses the losers. The ones that didn't make it, he chooses them. He chooses us. He chooses that kid that's picked last. He chooses you. And he says, I'm going to start my kingdom this way. He says, Simon, I choose you. You're a zealot. You hate the Romans and you hate tax collectors. Matthew, I choose you. You're a tax collector. You two room together. That'll be fun, right? <laughs> Nicodemus, you're starting to follow. You're learning, but you're a Pharisee, and you got the right purity, and you got the right religion, and you got the right pedigree. But I want you to meet someone. This is a Samaritan woman I met the other day. She's the wrong gender, the wrong race, the wrong religion, the wrong sexual history. I mean, she is impure as slush in a road. She's not the driven snow. She's the opposite of you. You're in a small group together. That'll be good, right? That's Jesus. He says, here's our strategy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. He's saying, this is it right here. This is everything. And Jesus says, look, we got no money, we got no power, we got no connections, we got no status, we don't have an ad campaign, we don't have any buildings, we don't have any soldiers. Perfect. Right where I want us to be. And so the people, the Roman money and power people, they're wrong, and the attackers, they're wrong, and the withdrawers, they're all wrong, Jesus says. And when they get hateful and angry, like some will, and they call us name, and they throw us in prison, and they'll even kill some of us. We're not going to back down. We're not going to grow bitter. We're not going to give in. We're just going to keep loving them. Just keep loving them. And when he hit us 
The Roman soldier does not have to give any reason for striking a person one time. One time. If a Roman soldier strikes someone, they just assume he, it was okay. They probably deserved it. And Jesus says, let them hit you twice. A Roman soldier could ask you to go a mile. Jesus says, let them go two. Go two with them. Show them that you're different. Showing people that we love Jesus Christ hurts sometimes. It costs us. It inconveniences us. But you have to do this to stay close to Jesus because that's what he did. And then the love of God begins to flow through our lives and it spills out to other people and we become part of a changing world. This is not Fred Rogers. Christians can get crazy and do dangerous things. The kingdom of God is taking part of heaven and bringing it down to this earth and living it in front of other people and they get influenced by it, they get changed by it, and they start to want it. They start to want it. It's not the zealot way. The world does not need another church that just condemns and is content to let the world go to hell. It's not the Pharisees' withdrawal way. The world doesn't need another church that just is their own little club of churchy activities. We're going to have VBS, and we want all the kids of this church to come. But you know what? We want them to invite their friends. Because their friends are the ones that need to hear so much of this message. So we're not going to be this little God's little holy huddle and, and stick together and, and, and link arms and not deal with anybody that's outside of us. And also like the Sadducees, we're not, Christians are not supposed to be co-opted by the world and deceived into living just for themselves, just for their family, just for what they want. We're to love them. We're to love them. We're to love the homeless people that we see. We're to love, our, if we have an arrogant, unethical boss, we're to love an ungrateful employee. We're to love a nasty neighbor. We're to love a suicide bomber. We're to love anybody, I call them EGR people, extra grace required. We're to love those people. See, now that way you can say EGR and nobody acts. You know, it's like if you, sometimes I talk to somebody in the military and they say, well, my BOM at my SOP was uh, STDAA. And I'm like, Great, I used to do that too. I think, I think. You know, EGR, extra grace required. And when we start to do those things, and God gives us opportunities, I mean, it may be something here, it may be getting involved here, it may be getting involved somewhere at work or something like that, it may be taking, taking some students to your house for a dinner, who knows what it'll be, but it'll be things like that that you begin to get covered by the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. God, it was written 2,000 years ago and more, and yet it's still so applicable to you. There's no book in the world like your word. It still applies. It still convicts our hearts. It still shakes us, gets us out of our complacency to get going and do things that we know will bring your kingdom down to this earth. Help us to be involved in that. And God, we thank you that you're such a good, forgiving God. When we mess up, you forgive so easily, so quickly. And we appreciate that. Lord, help us to emulate that.